Let's turn to the book of Colossians or the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Colossians. Now, a, couple of, a few weeks ago, we began our study in the book of Colossians, and uh, we noted that uh, this, this letter, though small, is one that is power-packed with so much. Uh, it, it is very similar to the book of, uh, of Ephesians. Uh, it's, it, it, I, I think I mentioned last night that uh, the book of Colossians is, is the cliff notes of Ephesians. If you know what a cliff note is, a book, you know. How, how many remember cliff notes? Anybody? Okay. Wow, that's more than last night. Okay. So, uh, but anyway, but it's, it, it's, it's not quite like that, but it, but it is very much based, in, and we'll see that as we go through the, the book itself. But uh, its primary reason is, is to exalt uh, the, um, uh, the headship of Christ over the church. And for the very reason that uh, in Paul's time, there were false teachings going about, uh, primarily Gnosticism, where uh, there was a combination of, uh, of uh, Jewish legalism and uh, Greek philosophy and Eastern mysticism all packaged into a, a belief system that, though would have mentioned Christ, was not really a true uh, doctrine. Uh, so this letter is written to uh, establish the foundations of faith in Jesus Christ properly and we see it here this morning in the very introduction and salutation and greeting of Paul. You know, we look at it as a greeting because in all, all of his letters, he would always greet the people he was writing to, whether churches or, or individuals. And so there's always that salutation. It was common in the letters of the time. But what we find to be even more striking here is that it is tremendously theological and tremendously doctrinal about the foundations of the Christian life. So we begin reading in verses 1 through 8. Once again, because I know we've read it before. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints, and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have, which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Now, if we simply just take a cursory look at the first eight verses of Colossians chapter 1, we can, we can see a general picture of the foundations of the, believer, of the believer's life, interwoven by the Apostle Paul and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the way, but interwoven by the Apostle Paul in such a way that establishes for his readers a solid, fundamental basis of truth to eventually stand fast against the false teachings of his times. Now, taking a, an even closer look, you can pick up patterns in the things that Paul pronounces. Take, for example, you find the solid truth of the triune God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, but one God. The triune God. Verses 2 and 3 where it says to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And then you jump down to verse 8, where it says, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So there is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit mentioned here in this particular passage. And then there's, there, there, there are the virtuous foundational pillars of faith, love, and hope. 
Now that's the order that Paul gives here in this letter. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that he established those three virtues in, in this order, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, of course, is love. But here he, he, he mentions them as faith, love, and hope. Verses 4 and 5. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereby you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And then there is that, the truth of the gospel. Because thirdly, there is the established word of God. There is the gospel itself, which is the good news or the evangel or the evangelion in the, in the Greek. The word of God, the gospel, and then what it does, what it does in bringing forth fruit. And it brings forth fruit through instruction. So we see that in verses 5 through 7. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereby you heard in, uh, before in the word of the truth of the gospel which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it does also in you since the day that you heard of it and know how do you know unless you've received it remember what Paul writes in the book of Romans that you know we hear that we receive and so on and so forth but anyway he goes on and he says as uh, and knew the grace of God in truth as you learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. And that is as much he's saying as you learn from this particular servant who was the one who got saved in Ephesus by hearing the gospel through the Apostle Paul. And it was Epaphras who brings the gospel and the word of God to the city of Colossae. And there the church is, is born in that particular city because of this servant that, he, that is called the dear fellow servant who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. So there's the word of God, the gospel, and it's bringing forth a fruit through instruction. Now, we want to add something to this. If we just look again at these first eight verses, <clears throat> and that is, uh, we want to add to the pillars of worship. Worship is a major part of the church. Worship is, is a major part of what we do as believers in Jesus Christ. And thanksgiving is primary in that we are to express our gratitude to the Lord for a number of things. Now let me just say that when we consider Thanksgiving, we are considering that never by itself because we always consider Thanksgiving with what we do in praising God, in worshiping God, in honoring God, with, even with singing, with songs of praise, and so on and so forth. So Thanksgiving is primary in that we are to express our gratitude to the Lord for a number of things. For example, for bringing us into his family. Because when we were without Christ, we didn't really have a family. If anything, we were, as Jesus had told his, his, uh, his own people, he says, you're of, the fa of your father, the devil. Well, that's not a family I want to be associated with. But we're brought into the family of God. But not only that, but we are also thankful that he made us holy as he is holy. That is why he calls, that's why Paul calls them saints and faithful brethren. Because they're separated now from what they were before and from where they were before to where they are now. We give thanks to the Lord for extending his grace and his peace to us. For extending his undeserved favor. We don't deserve it, but we were given it. For his peace, his shalom, his wholeness and his completeness. It's in this particular book that we learn that we are complete in Jesus Christ. So that's an, an, an important thing to be thankful for. We are, we are thankful for the hope that we have laid up for us in eternity. Look at verse 5. It says that we are uh, the hope that, which is laid up for you in heaven. Well, anytime you see heaven, we have to understand that it is talking about eternal matters, eternal things. We're not going to get to heaven and live in heaven for a little while and say, well, this is nice, but I think I want to go back to earth. We know one thing about heaven. When we get there, we're there forever. So there is that foundation of understanding that what we do as believers in Jesus Christ is always eternal. And then for the blessing of prayer and intercession, verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praying always for you. There is a blessing of prayer, but also the blessing of intercession. People are praying for you. You're praying for others. This is, this is a blessing that we've been given 
We receive the blessing, we give the blessing. And then it is for giving us his word. We thank God for giving us his word that we might know his grace in truth. We also praise him for the faithful servants that he raises up to serve the needs of the body of the church, just as he's mentioned Epaphras here. But these things mentioned are not the complete list of foundational pillars, but as a greeting, and listen to this, as a greeting and salutation to this church, they certainly are a comprehensive, wide-ranging foundation. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given us a strong doctrinal theological foundation to stand on simply in giving us a greeting to this church. Now, one thing that could be said of this introduction is that the Apostle Paul was writing with great appreciation and encouragement for a church that he had never visited. He had not visited this church. Probably never did. Because he was in prison at the time that he wrote it. And that's the other thing to think about. Not to mention that he wrote this letter from prison, which says much about his attitude of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord about everything that happened to bring the gospel to the city of Colossae. Paul is ecstatic about it. There's not a lot of people in prison ecstatic about anything. But Paul was. Because he knew that he was in prison for the sake of Christ. And certainly these foundational pillars were great reasons for giving thanks to God. Pillars and foundations, by the way, need to be seen as the very supports that not only hold up, but hold together the lives of every believer in Jesus Christ. And when it comes right down to it, Paul is giving thanks to the only living and true God. He emphasizes that very clear. This is from, this is, I mean, this is of critical importance. Paul says twice in two verses, from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Twice. What he's saying is, we have one true God, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because he is exactly whom he claimed to be. This is significant to the course of our studies all the way through this letter because of the errors that were being taught. And most of the errors always begin with the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is exactly whom he claimed to be. But let's begin with what John the Baptist said. John the baptizer, I like to call him because he was one who came to baptize. He would say in John chapter 1 verse 33, and I knew him not, which is interesting because he hadn't really known his own cousin, uh, Yeshua. Uh, he took a course off uh, into the wilderness experience, you know, uh, where, where he was brought up as a prophet of the Lord. In fact, we can say that John the Baptist was the last prophet of, of the Old Testament. But he says, I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So he is talking of Jesus and he says he's the Son of God. So there's that declaration. And then in verse 35, it says again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the second time that John has seen Jesus and pointed to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Because earlier on in this chapter, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold him who taketh away the sin of the world. So there is the declaration made by John who came as the prophet before the Lord, to proclaim the coming of the Lord. In John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36, John again says, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he, he has seen and heard, that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. He that has received his testimony has set his seal that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. In other words, he gave him the fullness of the Spirit to come to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. The Father loveth the Son. Now we begin to see a little bit more clearly the, uh, the, the focus upon Jesus being the Son of God. The Father loveth the Son and has given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Never forget that the Son is the exact representation of the Father. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. Then, of course, there are the words of Jesus himself about his being the Son of the Father. Uh, John 10, verse 15, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. He makes it very clear from whom he came, for what reason he came. And it all stems from this wonderful relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son who would come to represent his Father as the exact image and representation of the God, the one true and living God. But before we look at the pillars of faith, love, and hope, and today we're going to just look at faith and love because we're coming to the table of communion today, let's consider Paul's prayer life. Let's go back to Colossians 1 verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. In reading the letters of Paul to churches and individuals, you come to realize that Paul never stopped praying. He never stopped praying. If anyone prayed more than Paul, it was probably Jesus himself. What a painful reminder sometimes. What a painful reminder at times that that can be to our own somewhat careless or prayerless ways. To think of someone who would pray at all times. I say that only because all of us, if we were honest with ourselves, we, we, would, we would have to say we, we don't pray as often as we should. We're busy people. We get caught up in busy things. We try to get as much sleep as we can because people are always telling us on the news or on the internet or on the web or whatever, they're always telling us we don't get enough sleep. Then we hear that and then we don't get enough sleep. Then we set our alarms as far close to the time that we need to leave out the house as we can. Then we get ready and we say, you know, well, I, I've got to go, Lord, I'll, I'll meet with you later. I'm not saying this to condemn anyone. So I have to be convicted of it myself. How often it is that we could be praying at every moment. This is what Paul did. But Paul didn't have the comforts that we have. Paul didn't have all of the things that we have to remind us of where we have to be, what we have to do. Paul did one thing. When he woke up, he gave thanks to God for the life that he had, the breath that he had, and then he began to pray and every time he was reminded of someone, he prayed for them. This was Paul's life. So when you think about it, if the Son of God prayed and if the great apostle prayed, how much more do we need to pray? Nothing could stop Paul from praying. Not even being chained to a Roman soldier while under house arrest. And I feel sorry for the Roman soldier. He was chained to Paul. And Paul prayed, to him, prayed for him all the time. 
And then when he wasn't praying for him, he was preaching to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure for a while, the, the Roman soldier would probably say, you know, I, I can't wait till my shift is over. <laughs> Let somebody else hear the gospel here. And probably before the shift was over, that person went home a believer in Jesus Christ. So the one that was really under arrest were the Roman soldiers. But in every instance and at every opportunity, Paul prayed. And in this, can, there can be no doubt. Listen to these words. There are not a lot of words here to listen to. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. What I call the next shortest verse of the Bible. We all know what the shortest verse of the Bible is, right? Jesus wept. The Gospel of John. That's two words. Here's one with three words. And Paul simply wrote, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Paul would not say that unless he did it himself. Pray without ceasing. Listen to what he says to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 verse 9. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul always prayed thoughtfully and thoroughly for all who would cross his path at any time in his life. And if you write down any words at all today, if you write anything down, write this. Paul always prayed thoughtfully and thoroughly. If you write anything down, write those two words down. Because for me, that is the way I want to pray. Thoughtfully and thoroughly. I want my life to be a life of prayer. Not just in a, in, a, in a closet. I mean, I see things, I pray. I want to. It doesn't happen all the time, but I want that to be. Because I, I see that in, in Paul as a great example for all of us. We move on to the issue or the pillar, if you will, of faith. Because this is what first Paul recognizes from what he has been told about the church in Colossae. Colossians 1 verse 4, since he says, we heard of your faith, your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. As you notice, both faith and love are mentioned in this verse, which is telling you right now, we're only doing one verse, actually two, we're already to three, now we do four. That's a lot for us, at least now. But faith and love are mentioned in this verse primarily because they are the two basic or foundational qualities of life for true believers in Jesus Christ, faith and love. In fact, as the Apostle John put it, based upon the commandments of Jesus, they form the one great commandment of the Lord God himself. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 for just a moment. 1 John 3, 23. And notice that John writes, and this is his commandment. So this is the Lord's commandment. That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. We should believe on the name and the authority of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another as he gave us commandment. Do you notice belief and love together? Faith and love together. But let me say that the faith spoken of by the apostles is not so much about the energy of faith. A lot is being said about faith today as if to say that faith is, is something that's greater than the substance that it represents. To the point that even in, in, in certain uh, parts of the church, for example, in Word of Faith churches today, it, it is very clearly heard that we are to have faith in faith. That is not biblical. 
We are not to have faith in faith. We are to have faith in a person. Our faith, our belief, our trust is to be fully and solely upon Jesus Christ. So it isn't so much about the energy of faith. Think, think about it this way. You know, we just talked about prayer, and today the world talks about prayer. They say, well, you know, we have all of these scientists that have, have looked into, you know, psychologists and whatnot. We've looked into this issue about prayer, and, you know, people that pray, you know, it doesn't matter to which God, but if they pray, sometimes they come out better than, than they are, you know, in, in some of the problems that they're having. But it is about who you pray to that matters. The same with faith. Who you put your faith in matters. So it's not so much about the energy of faith, nor is it what some people fear today, that their faith is not the right quality. Again, that comes from what uh, even Pastor Sandy was talking about last time in the book of Job. You know, when we say, well, you know, maybe it's, you, know, you don't have faith because you, you, you're too much of a sinner or because of this or because of that. So their faith is not the right quality or, or that it is not sufficient enough quantity of faith to save them. Not enough faith in you. Really? Well, I heard Jesus, and we see it in the Gospels, talk about faith the size of a mustard seed using a great example of the size of a seed, that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can say to a mountain, be removed, and it would be removed. So it isn't about quantity. And really, not even quality. It is definitely definitely not faith in self. It is not faith in others that is needed to live successfully in this life. It is very hard to put faith in people. And they're good, trustworthy people. Paul talks about Epaphras, a faithful servant of the Lord. But Epaphras was human, and Paul was human. So it is, it's not to put faith in ourselves or in others that is needed to live successfully. No, this great pillar of faith, and the word for faith in the Greek is the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. This faith is faith or belief or trust or dependency as I said earlier in a particular person the person of the Lord Jesus Christ we are putting our faith in you know uh, it, it is said in the in the in the book of uh, James that even the demons believe and tremble and it's interesting when he says that because what he's saying is that too many Christians, or quote-unquote Christians, maybe, are those who would say, well, you know, I believe in the Lord here. But faith in Christ has to involve our mind and our heart. If it's just mental assent, if we only come to that mental assent, well, that's the way the demons believe, and they tremble. There are a lot of people who say they're believers that they don't tremble at God. They don't understand the awesomeness of the God that we serve. So our faith is a belief, yes, but it is a trust. And it is a dependency upon Jesus Christ. Not just a mental assent to say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It is to believe in him fully. It is to trust in him fully. It is to depend upon him fully. He is the person in whom faith rests that truly saves. That is the kind of faith. A faith that truly saves is one that rests upon the person of Jesus Christ. People who have a strong faith in self-effort, or maybe they have faith in a church, or maybe they have faith in religious rites and rituals and ceremonies, I have to say, they will be lost forever if that's where their faith is. But even the feeblest of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, again, faith the size of a mustard seed. Even the feeblest of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, will save eternally. And it is from there that our faith will grow as we stay committed 
and dwell in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth and trusteth and becomes fully dependent upon in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we read early in verse 36 of John 3, it says, He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not, the Son shall not see life. That's a fine line, isn't it? You believe on the Son, you have everlasting life. You, you don't believe the Son, you shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Jesus in John 5:24 said verily verily I say unto you that he or uh, I say unto you he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me and notice believeth on him that sent me you believe the father hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death to life Folks, this is what this, this life of, of, of faith is all about. Passing from death to life. From darkness into light. As a matter of fact, listen to John 12, 40, verse 46. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. We go from death to life, from darkness to light, and we go from despair which is all that the world can give you to the love of Christ, which is the greatest gift that we could ever have. And in John 20, verse 31, it says, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Isn't it interesting how the last book that we studied was the book of John, the gospel of John, and now we're using that to, to lead us into the gospel, or the, the, the epistle of, of Paul to the Colossians. By the way, I have one more. Because simply the Lord Jesus Christ brings us in touch with his Father and makes it possible for God the Father to adopt us as sons and daughters of his don't forget what Jesus said in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, one aspect of, <coughs> excuse me, one aspect of Jesus' intercessory work on our behalf is his right to ask his Father to adopt the fatherless. Well, we came to realize that we were the fatherless when we were without Christ in this world. Since we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But before Christ, our only relationship with God was he was God and we were subjects. Subjects of his creation, but we were tainted with sin. We were born into this world in sin. It is Jesus who alone brings about this father-son or father-daughter relationship between God and man. It is Jesus who brings it about. Consider Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of, of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might, have the, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We come to Jesus. We have a father now. He says, I've, I've brought you to my father, and he's adopting you. And you can say, Abba, Daddy, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And Paul expands that in Romans 8, verses 13 through 17, when he says, For if ye live after the flesh, you shall die. 
But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, just as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you consider them dead, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And by the way, folks, listen, you can't be a son one day and not a son the next. Sometimes the father has to take out the belt. But he doesn't say, oh, yeah, get out of here. You're not my son anymore. That's a relationship we can't break. Now, fellowship, that's a, different, that's a different matter. We'll talk about that another time. But notice, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. Just consider, if you will, the prodigal son. Though he went away, when he came back, what did the father do? Went and embraced him, as stinky as his son was. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. By faith, the life of the believer is to be governed by God and Christ. By faith, the life of the believer is to be governed by Jesus Christ. You know, we hear a lot about government today. Government, governance, you know, who governs what, whatever. It's crazy. It's, it's too crazy. It's insane. But the fact of the matter is, when we surrender ourselves to God and to Christ, and to the work of Christ on the cross, and to the work and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all our sin, to forgive us of our sins, and to believe and to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and that he rose again from the dead. To believe on these things. It, it establishes for us the fact that we are saying to Jesus, Lord, you are Lord. You are master. And I'm your servant. I'm your bond slave. And just let Jesus then say to you, that's fine, but... You're no longer my slave. You're my friend. That only comes when we surrender to Christ being the one who is Lord. And the benefits of that go far beyond what we can understand. We are to live, we are to move, we are to have our being in the sphere of his presence among us and that in the faith of Jesus Christ, in our belief, in our trust, in our dependency upon Jesus. One reason why Paul in Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 writes, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have, that we have access by faith into this undeserved favor, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a precious statement that is. And he goes on to talk about love there in Romans 5. But let's talk about love here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. Now, I want you to notice he doesn't say to some of the saints, he says to all of the saints. That's a, that's a significant point in, in the word of God. Because another foundational pillar of the Christian life is love. But this love is not the kind of natural love that is known in the world. While we are all fellow members of the human race, and the last time I checked I was human, and the last time I checked by looking now at you, you're all human too, that's good. But, you know, I say that because, uh, seriously speaking, somehow the world doesn't consider little babies being born human. 
And that is a travesty. More than that, it is something that will be judged very strongly by God. So while we are all fellow members of the human race, even though we're citizens of heaven as believers, it would be ideal that man should love one another in that very basic premise, right? We, we would think that just because we're all human, we, we should you know, love one another. But here's, here's the thing about the world's love, is people love each other because they love the same things. You know? If they don't love the same things, for example, then you get into all kinds of uh, problems, you know. Uh, you, you don't love uh, socialism. <laughs> you get hated by the socialists, you know, that, that kind of thing we're seeing to happen today in the, in, in, in the politics of, of, of our nation. I just mentioned that as an example, but here's the thing. That's not the kind of love that Paul is speaking of. The world love its own, you know, and, and Jesus even told his disciples that, you know, he said, look, the world will love its own. If you do things that please the world, then guess what? The world will love you. But if you love me, they won't love you anymore because they don't love me. And more and more, and folks, keep your ears and eyes open to the things that are happening in the world today. Much of the world today hates God, hates Christ, hates the word of God, hates the Christian. It is getting that obvious now. It wasn't so obvious a few years ago. It's obvious today. And there's no doubt about that. But Paul is not speaking of that kind of love. He is speaking of love that is called in the Greek agapao or agape. It is a love that is very a different sort of love. It is a very different sort of love. It is unconditional love. It is what many people call today God's love because it comes from God and it could only come from God because this is how God has loved us unconditionally. And that is the sort of love that believers should hold for each other. Why is the love of believers for one another greater than the natural love that mankind is to have for their fellow man? Well, to begin with, the love of believers is based on the love of Jesus Christ. And the love of Jesus Christ is the highest peak upon which love can sit. It is the summit of all that is called love. The love of Christ. This is surely seen in the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He paid the ultimate price for man. And if I can put it very personally, he paid the ultimate price for you. He paid the ultimate price for me. He sacrificed his life before God to bear the sins of men. Men who opposed and stood against him. If we remember back before we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, how many times can we say that we opposed and stood against God and against Christ? We may not want to admit it, but we did it more than we could even think. Purely by the way we lived our lives. Selfishly. And that hopelessly. No greater love could ever be demonstrated than the love that Christ showed when he came. And so when a person gives their life to follow Jesus Christ, they are giving themselves to love as Christ loved. I hope you understand that. I hope you meditate upon that thought. That when a person gives their life to follow Jesus, they are giving themselves to love as Jesus loved. That person is proclaiming that they will love to the ultimate degree. They will sacrifice themselves for others, even as Christ sacrificed himself. The love believers are to have for one another is stirred by the Holy Spirit stirred up in our own hearts, in our own lives. There's a reminder. Sometimes that reminder comes and when, when, the, when the Lord is, is 
He's trying to remind us of our own character, how we're sometimes living it out. He stirs us. And I thank, the, I thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit that reminds us of these things. What we have to remember is that the love of God is a, is a supernatural love. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> As opposed to the natural love of the world. The very Spirit of God who lives within each believer arouses this love of God within every believer's heart. We must understand that believers possess a great love for all men. That is the very love of Christ. But they are also to possess a very special love for fellow believers. That is what Paul said. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. Why? Because they have all committed themselves to follow the same Lord. We have committed ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ here today. We have committed ourselves to following the same Lord who loved us with an everlasting love. And we cannot pick and choose what we choose or what we want to come forth out of our character. This is the reason why Paul said the greatest of these or the greatest of these is love in 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest virtue that there is is the love of God. We we all move and we all live in the faith of Christ and in that very same sphere there is no room for division. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. There's no room for division. There's no room for envy. There's no room for criticism, grumbling, or strife. What do we deal with so often in the church today are those very things. When if we are in God's word and staying in God's word and believing God's word and desiring to live out God's word, we won't find ourselves in the midst of those particular issues. Easier said than done, is it? In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you. Notice, a new commandment. That ye love one another. And he's speaking to his disciples in that upper room at the Passover supper before he goes to the cross. He says, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Folks, the world is looking at the church. And whether they hate us or love us or whatever, they will know one thing, that if we are his disciples, it is because we love one another. We die to ourselves that others will be blessed. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 12 says, And the Lord make you, in, make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. He's speaking to the church as to their love for each other. And then he says, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So the love of the church, the love of those who are believers is, is a greater uh, thing for us to understand before we go love the world. You know, we have a lot of people that are very evangelistically motivated, and that's good. We want people to go out and tell people about Jesus. But they'll go out, and in some cases, they'll go out and, and treat others outside of the church, you know, with this kind of respect and love so that they can bring them to Christ. And then they come back to the church, and then, and, and then they mistreat the, the believers that they, they serve with. Now, that's a general thought, but, 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 but consider that sometimes we have an imbalance in, in the way that we are to love one another. Jesus said, love one another first. Paul said, love, another, love one another first, and then love the world. We know that Jesus came because of his great love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned love is genuine love. Not a fake love. Genuine love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Before we come to the table of communion today, let me read the words of John. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. Something that I want us to become very familiar with, not just with what we find Paul saying in Colossians, but on this issue of love. John says, beloved. He calls them beloved. Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation just means the atoning sacrifice. He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Coming to the table of communion this morning is a good time for us to consider our love for one another as believers in Jesus Christ. But maybe if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to come to know the love that he has shown you by dying on the cross for you, by shedding his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, giving you the opportunity to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, to say, I believe that Jesus Christ came to die for my sins. And believing in your heart that he has risen from the dead after he died for your sins. We're told in Romans chapter 10. That if we believe with our heart, confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, risen from the dead. That you will be saved. <clears throat> These are critical issues today. Because we're coming down to the nitty gritty by looking at what's happening in the world today, what's happening in the Middle East today, what's happening in Israel today, what's happening in the United States today, what is happening worldwide, globally as it were. It's time to come to Christ. And it's time to begin to be examples of the love of Christ.